Welcome back to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems, where we discuss how to use SGI Nichiren Buddhism to navigate the realities of daily life. I'm Jihee Jolly, reporting from Chicago, where I sat down with Buddhist parents Lonnie and Lisa Young to learn about their family's story, because today we're talking about parenting. The parent-child relationship is a truly universal one, because no matter what their presence may have been in our lives, we are all the children of somebody, and we all know that our relationship with our parents impacts us forever. But what about the experience of being the parent? If you think about it, having a child isn't just about the birth of a new human being. It's about the birth of at least two new human beings, a child and a parent. For the parent, it's a wild experience. You live your whole life as an independent person, and you get to know yourself pretty well. And then, when you have a baby, all of a sudden, another new person is born. You, as a parent. Then, come all the questions. First, regarding raising your child, how do you know if you're being a good parent? Is there a way to ensure your kids grow up to be happy, successful, and contributive members of society? What if your child has experiences that are really difficult to handle? And then, regarding being a parent, how do you not compare yourself to other parents? How do you trust your decisions? And considering the enormous amount of research on early childhood development that has come out in the last few decades, how do you navigate all the advice and fend off the fear-mongering media narratives on how badly parents can damage their kids well into adulthood? We'll unpack all this and more today with the help of a few Buddhist parents and some experts to learn what SGI Nichiren Buddhism says about parenting and how people have applied its teachings to their own lives. My name is Lonnie Young. I am from Chicago. Grew up in Chicago on the South Side. I work law enforcement, been in law enforcement for 22 years. My name is Lisa Barnes Young. Um, I, am, I live in Chicago currently and I am a, um, a professor of neurological sciences um, at a medical school in Chicago. Lonnie and Lisa are parents to Kiara, who's 16, and Khalil, who's 13. Initially, though, Lonnie didn't want to have kids. And I'll never forget this night. All right. So we were watching TV. I don't remember what we were watching. And she said, I have something to tell you. And I knew. I just, I don't know what it was, but I knew in the tone of her voice, it was something regarding the child. And we were not expecting him to come. And um, I, was, I was really happy because then it was a perfect set. It was a girl and a boy. So even though I wanted this dream of six kids, I still felt like, okay, it's a perfect set because I was at the age where I could not, I knew I could not have more kids after that and didn't want to anyway because I was old and tired. Um, but it, it's just interesting that, um, that you felt like, you know, you didn't want them. And even today when things go wrong, he'll say, told you we should have got goldfish. If, if I, we start having bad, severe problems in this marriage, I have two children, right? I can't leave two children. I'm stuck with these two kids. How do I have two kids and I ain't want none? <laughs> you will say that. You don't have to include that. 
Lonnie explained that most of his fear around having children stemmed from his own experiences as a child, which were complicated. I remember uh, as a child, uh, my biological father <clears throat> was very abusive to my mother. And, um, you know, she mustered the courage to leave him. And I probably was about three or four. And I was, you know, as a kid, I was very devastated. And uh, I remember our first apartment after my mother left him and how I cried so much because I wanted to be with my father. You know, as a kid, you don't understand the dynamics of domestic abuse. You just know you want your parent, right? And uh, so as I got a little older, my mother uh, met my stepfather, who she's married to now. He's also a member. And uh, that was a very challenging relationship. I didn't, I don't know if I saw it in a sense of him trying to replace my father or I just didn't want him to be around because I had spent so much time with just my mother and I. So we were the team and he was the outsider. Then my mother decided to have another child. So I was the only child up until about 15. Yeah. So she had this other kid and, uh, and I hated babysitting because at 15, 16, I want to play softball, play football, rag my bikes, go on dates. I want to do everything else or everything that everybody else was doing as a teenager in high school. And I had to spend my whole summers babysitting every day, right? So from that, I swore to never have children, right? I just knew I would never ever have children. But when Lonnie joined the military after high school, he did end up having a child, unplanned, with someone he briefly dated. When he was about six months, uh, her by this time her and I had ended the relationship, but I had like uh, custody of him and she moved on with her military career. And uh, so when he was about five, she wanted him back. And because I had not gone through the legal process of uh, permanent custody, she was able to take him away from me. And I think mentally and emotionally, that really scarred me. So when Lonnie and Lisa's daughter was born, he knew he had to change. And somehow I knew that this child would never be taken away from me, right? And I think it was um, the commitment I made to myself. Like, it's not just, it's more than a child being taken away from me, but it's also what am I doing to ensure that I wake up every morning with my child in my house, right? That was my, you know, so that was just... I knew from that point I had to do something about myself. The mixed feelings that come from being a parent are actually pretty normal, according to experts, as anxiety is normal in the face of new experiences and uncertainty. You, you feel a little bit like you're losing your identity sometimes, and your life now has become about your child. That's Liz Morrison, a licensed clinical social worker in New York City who works with children, teens, and families, including parents' groups. So even with the parents that I work with, it's, it's a very hard time in your life, especially when you have a young kid, 
to be like, oh my God, every day I have to go pick them up at whatever program or I have to get a nanny or a babysitter or I have to put them in something and am I doing the right thing? When you don't have children, uh, you're pretty much just focused on your own life and your responsibilities for your life or lack of, if you choose. That's Ellen Soto, a Buddhist parents group leader who supports parents in their Buddhist practice across the state of Florida. But once you bring another life into the world, I think it changes how you yourself perceive the world. Um, Because now you're thinking about it through the eyes of this young child and what they're going to encounter. I spoke to Liz and Ellen to understand the struggles of becoming a parent. And it was in my conversations with them that I realized that when a child is born, a parent is born at the same time. But often, parents focus their entire energy on raising, loving, and protecting the child and forget to do the same thing for themselves. Then, because they often aren't doing anything to fortify their own self-confidence, courage, health, or energy, in a very subtle way, the growth and success of their child, or lack of it, can become yet another way to seek happiness or unhappiness outside of themselves. Luckily, as we explain a lot on this show, the basic premise of Nichiren Buddhism is that we have everything we need inside of us to transform into wonderful, happy people. And the practice of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo daily is what enables us to do so. This includes manifesting our compassion, wisdom, and courage as parents, both for ourselves and for our children. And I think in the world we're currently living, strengthening these qualities in our lives is more important than ever. The more people I spoke to for this episode, the more aware I became of the many unique challenges children face in today's world as well. Consider this clip from a TEDx talk from clinical psychologist, Dr. Shefali Sibari. Our children are facing challenges today that we couldn't have dreamed of, and evidence suggests that they are buckling under the pressure. One in five children in America show signs or symptoms of a psychological disorder. Now that is a hair-raising statistic. Two years ago, there were over 662,000 children in America that were in foster care. The use of ADHD drugs is on an exponential high, 274% global increase. UNICEF did a study a few years ago and found that American children ranked the second unhappiest. There was a study done in the UK of 30,000 children, and it was reported that one in 10 over the age of eight reported being unhappy on a consistent basis. Something is amiss. We need to sit up, pay attention, and raise our children differently. Her work was recommended to me by a listener who emailed me about her book and shared how much it resonates with Buddhism. And I think her framework is a really useful one to set up what Buddhism says about parenting. It's a familiar thesis. Changing on the inside always comes first. And in this case, no matter what kind of struggle your child may be facing or presenting you with, parents need to be the change. Dr. Sabari explains that while, of course, parental influence is not the only factor at play in a child's life, the relationship that parents nurture with their children holds transformative power. Ultimately, she argues, 
most parents don't hurt their children because they're ill-intentioned, but because they hold inherited legacies of emotional baggage from their own relationships, and it's largely unconscious. And kids are basically highly skilled at pushing our buttons. You know, when we pick on our children nonstop, we nitpick at them, why aren't you like this? Why don't you do that? Why couldn't you be more like her? Chances are it's not because they are inadequate, but because we come from a place of inner lack and we ourselves live under the tyranny of a severe inner critic. You know, our children come to us whole, complete and worthy. They're happy with two sticks, a stone and a feather. But because we have been conditioned so deeply in an unconscious manner, so severed from our own sense of presence, wholeness, attunement, and sense of self and, and, and abundance, that we project a sense of lack onto them, and we teach them, do not depend on your, sen on your sense of self for worth and value, but look outward. Look to the Ferrari, the corporate corner office, to the casino, to the pill, to the bottle, to the needle, to spouse number one, two, and three, to where you live, to where you graduate from. Because we are severed from a sense of being, we are consumed by doing. So how do parents evolve, whether it's out of their own insecurities or to rise to the challenges of the society we currently live in? Another really important thing that I think parents need to, to think about is children don't grow up in bubbles, right? They don't just sit at home all day until they're 21 and then leave the house and you specifically are the only person who has interacted with them. So that is the way that they are, right? From the moment children are born, right? There's other people in the room immediately influencing them, whether it's the doctors or doulas or, you know, another, like a grandparent or anybody else, right? And then you start to take them to classes or you start to have them interact with other kids and you start to, then they go to school, right? And like, so immediately your influence only becomes one piece of the puzzle. My grandmother used to say, uh, when they're young, they heavy on your heart. When they old, they heavy on your mind. So, and to me, you know, like when they small, you know, it's your heart pounds 10 times faster because you see them, you hold them, and you just want to keep them close to your, your chest, right? But when they get older and they want to do their own things and have their own friends and do what their friends do and go out into the world, you know, I'm racking my brains like, did I give them all the best lessons? And I have a coworker, we were talking yesterday, and his daughter just went off to college and asked him, how do you share stories with your daughter about what we do and what happens in the world to young ladies that have oblivious to what's going on in society, right? Because a parent, we protect our children from the horrors of society, especially when you have a parent that's in law enforcement. You know, you just really keep them nested, right? But I always wonder if, am I hurting her, keeping her nested and him, or do I just say, here, this is what the world has to offer? So I, for me, it's always about them making the best decision to make sure they protect it. And that no matter what they do, people know, you know, this person can be trusted, you know, that they're respected in society, you know, and that they, they cherish and honor everybody they encounter, right, with compassion. You know, with the, the same guidance that President Ikeda gives us, that we bestow upon them, that they go out into the world like that, right? So 
they're the next beacon of light, the next generation to really influence the world. And that's what I want them to be and want them to do. What Lonnie is describing is one of the biggest contributions that I think Ikeda has made to helping explain Buddhism in modern society, which is this, a natural extension of the Buddhist belief in the dignity of all life is that young people should be treated and nurtured as fully endowed human beings who have a great mission in society. This is perfectly encapsulated in the following passage that Ellen, the Buddhist parents group leader, pointed me to. What she shared really helped her in her own relationship with her son. In a chapter titled, Accepting Others for Who They Are, Ikeda writes, Many children today say that they don't feel as if they belong anywhere, that there is nowhere they can feel completely accepted. This may be because many families have adopted the value criteria of schools and businesses, always measuring and ranking children against some standard of performance or excellence. Children feel that the harder they try to please their parents, the more their parents expect of them. When they ask why such demands are being made on them, their parents say, it's for your own future, or I demand so much of you because I love you. This can lead to children coming to see themselves as worthless and falling into despair because they can't live up to their parents' love and expectations. Such feelings of inadequacy or even self-loathing build up and cause children great suffering. The cheerless view of life presented by parents who can only express their love for their children by scolding them to study harder may itself be the root cause of children's anger and frustration. The first step is to recognize, accept, and embrace your children for who they are. Don't force your idealized image of the perfect child on them. Make sure they know you love them for who they are not because they're well-behaved or get good grades in school. Give them all the love they need and assure them that whatever they may do, you are their greatest friend and ally. That's the way to enable children to learn to love themselves, and children who love themselves can nurture and develop themselves. If children can learn to think for themselves, questioning why they are doing something, and motivate themselves to contribute to the happiness and welfare of others, they will be unstoppable. This will be even more so if parents set such an example through their own behavior and actions. This practice is about really changing those things within yourself that stand in the way of being happy. And every person has a right to be happy. So a child, just because it's in a family, is not an extension of the parent or the parent's wish or desire, right? And so my issues, my weaknesses, the things that I have to work on that not only stand in the way of my own happiness, but also in the, ha the happiness of another person, I have to kind of get out of the way. My practice enables me to recognize what those things are. I think before I practiced, I could not see what my weak spots were, you know, what behavioral things that I do or ways of thinking that I have that actually impede my own advancement. So as you start to practice Buddhism and you awaken to the real inherent dignity of your life, you also are able to awaken to the inherent dignity of every other person's life, 
right? And it doesn't matter if a person is two or five or 25. I think the biggest challenge in being a parent for me, because there's many, um, has the biggest one has been having to have the courage to, um, to protect them. You know, courage is, is, is a foundation of our practice, right? And we chant to bring out that courage. And I used to say that I don't have any courage. But I, you know, through studying Buddhism and through growing up in this practice, I realized that everybody has courage, but you have to be able to tap into it to bring it out. Like, so say there's something happening at school, you know, and I have to stand up to a teacher or an administrator, you know, that takes courage. And, and sometimes I would try to preserve the relationship with that other person, right? And maybe not be as forceful as I should. And then I would beat myself up, you know, afterwards like man I should have said this to that person or done this for that it was my husband who just bust in the door and like you know don't you ever do that to my child and I don't I don't have that and um so for me that has been a challenge the other challenge is, has been with my daughter I guess not being so controlling with my daughter like knowing that she has her own path because you know she's 16 and you know I mean even before she was 16 like I said she's been fiercely independent she wants to be her own person and I, you know, know or think I know the way things should go. And I want her to take a certain path. And she is like, this is my path. And I have to let her have her own path. Lisa's story in particular really reminded me of my own relationship with my mom, who raised me Buddhist. One thing I've always really appreciated is that even though she and I have very different personalities, she has always encouraged me to be my own person whether she understood or agreed with my choices or not. Recently, I asked her if it was difficult for her to do that. She shared that she definitely chanted about it and ultimately realized it was her benefit that I was so different and our relationship was one she could really learn from. And then she reminded me of one of her favorite poems by the Lebanese poet-philosopher Khalil Gibran. It reads, Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. This echoes something that I read in Ikeda's book, Happy Parents, Happy Kids, where he says, Children are messengers from the future. We have no choice but to entrust our world to them. I trust children. I believe in their ability to grow and develop. Every child possesses a unique and important mission. For this reason, I treat children with respect, and I give my all in doing so. To do this on a daily basis, my mom explained, parents can chant to bring out their own deep respect for themselves as parents. Basically, she said, we might think we're loving our kids, but we aren't really if we can't love ourselves. And you have to love yourself as a parent until the day you die. In this sense, another way to think about chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo is that it's a practice to help us develop our ability to love both ourselves and others. The one that makes me do the most human revolution is my son. I don't know, maybe because my oldest son, I didn't 
have the opportunity to raise him into a young adult. You know, so I have this this desire to like really be strong with him, right? To really connect with him, to like really guide him, right? But he's not me. And we are nothing alike. We are night and day. He say and do certain things, and sometimes I'm very explosive. I mean, not in a harmful way, but I'm so emotional that, you know, I express my emotions immediately and very strong. Something I experienced as a child, you know, is, is buried deep in my life. Then he does something to trigger that, and, you know, it caused certain emotions, and I'm like, rawr, and I'm like, oh, this is my baby. I gotta go chant, you know? So, you know, he makes me chant more than anybody in that house, right? It's because I love him so much, right? He is so innocent and he's such a good kid, you know? But I think my experiences, it makes it difficult for me to really understand who he is as an individual. The way that I see it is that anything that causes me to suffer in my parenting role um, is something that I need to change in myself. When, when I don't chant a lot of, when I don't chant enough, my life condition is, can be low and I can be swayed and I can be, you know, just thrown off by things that happen in the environment. And the kids will be the biggest trigger. I try to keep turning the, the, the light back to me. You know, what do I need to do? What do, I, what do I have to change? And it's always, it always comes to me, you know, not maybe not immediately, but after I'm chanting for a while, I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's what I need to do. I get the wisdom to make the right decision. Through this process that Lonnie and Lisa are describing, we are actually enacting a profound transformation, the kind that Dr. Sabari calls for, deep in our own life. This is because the Lotus Sutra teaches about the oneness and simultaneous enlightenment of parent and child. Ikeda explains, In this scenario, from the parent's perspective, the child is not merely a child, but what Buddhism calls a good friend, someone who leads another to Buddhism. In the same way, the child can also attain Buddhahood through the parent's faith. It all depends on the parent's resolute faith and nothing else. It is important that we have unshakable confidence in this. We should chant with a determination to definitely lead our children, as well as our parents, to happiness and complete fulfillment. Each daimoku we chant with such determination becomes a brilliant sun, illuminating the lives of our children or parents, transcending great distances and even the threshold of life and death. This is an incredibly profound principle, but I recognize that for those who have never put it into practice, it may sound hard to believe, so I'll offer you an example. In my research for this episode, I came across the amazing story of a woman named Sue Kwan, which was published in our weekly newspaper, The World Tribune, a couple of years ago. Here's the summary. When Sue Kwan and her husband were living in Taipei with their happy eight-year-old son, Shen, one day, the unthinkable happened. A man with severe mental illness came to Shen's school and told the faculty he was looking for his daughter. Before he could be questioned, he took out a vat of toxic acid and started splashing it on the students. 
Shen's face was drenched with acid and he was rushed into several surgeries, but ultimately ended up becoming blind and deaf, and the family was devastated. Su Quan shared, I had absolutely no idea how to take care of a child who was blind and deaf. As Shen adjusted to his new life, each time he cried, I cried too. I began to wonder what kind of future Shen would have as a blind and deaf man. What kind of job could he get? What kind of family could he have? I felt he had no future. At this time, her mother's neighbor encouraged her to start chanting and assured her she could change her life by doing so. Willing to try anything, she began practicing Buddhism earnestly and taking action to find Shen the best treatment possible, including trying to find a way to move to the United States. Based on her efforts and advocacy, a foundation for people with disabilities in Taipei named her Mother of the Year on Mother's Day. And because this drew so much media attention, the government responded by sending the family to San Francisco, where Shen could receive treatment and attend the best schools for children in his condition. By high school, he could attend classes without assistance, and he graduated with a full scholarship to UC Berkeley, where he earned a degree in computer science and then a grant from Microsoft to develop his career. Su Quan shared honestly, even with these unbelievable victories, I still had one unfulfilled dream, for my son to start a family. So she began chanting for him to meet a nice girl who could see his big heart, marry him, and take care of him forever. Then one day, when Shen brought home a girl for Thanksgiving who was also blind and a teacher at a school for the blind, instead of being happy for him, Su Quan felt let down as she wanted her son to be with someone who could take care of him. Fortunately, a fellow Buddhist pointed out to her that she was chanting not for what was best for Shen, but what she wanted for him, and there's a difference. So she decided to change her own heart about the matter. As I began to chant for what was best for my son, I realized that his new partner was the perfect person for him, she says. They are now married and have a house together and have also traveled through Europe by themselves. While this is a unique story, it echoes something that Ellen told me parents have to navigate even in the smallest ways on a daily basis. You know, many times through the years, um, I would have an idea of what I think a choice for my son should be, and he would have his own idea. So for example, um, when he was going into high school, um, they, where we lived, they had these kind of choice programs. They're sort of like magnet schools. One was a performing arts school, and one was an uh, IB, International Baccalaureate program. And I really thought, oh, he should go to the IB program because they do all this community engagement, and it's, you know, it's going to be such a great experience for him. But he was really drawn to the performing arts school. Through the long process of applying and waiting to get into school, during which even her son chanted, Ellen realized she was chanting for him to get into the school she wanted for him, while he was chanting just to get into the best school for him. And he ended up getting into the performing arts school. Which then became this unbelievable opportunity for him, not only to do performing arts, but he really enjoyed doing a lot of the production management and backstage. And because most of the students in a performing arts school want to be on stage, you know, he was able to really excel in this area. I really learned, first of all, to trust, you know, what he wanted. 
Based on his school experiences, he was able to open the path to a career in production and technology. I've heard countless such experiences of people learning to accept and support their children for who they are, and thereby unlocking the power to support them through life's biggest challenges because they believe in them so much. And while this episode is about parents and children, I think this principle applies to every kind of human relationship. So I'll leave you today with the words of the great historian, writer, and activist W.E.B. Du Bois that I think encapsulates what true love and support can really convey to a child. This comes by way of the curator Maria Popova, through whom I recently read and adored a book called Posterity, Letters of Great Americans to Their Children. To his daughter in 1914, who was living away from home at school at the time, Du Bois writes, Dear little daughter, be honest, frank, and fearless, and get some grasp of the real values of life. You will meet, of course, curious little annoyances. People will wonder at your dear brown and the sweet crinkly hair. But that simply is of no importance and will soon be forgotten. Remember that most folk laugh at anything unusual, whether it is beautiful, fine, or not. You, however, must not laugh at yourself. You must know that brown is as pretty as white, or prettier, and crinkly hair as straight, even though it is harder to comb. The main thing is the you beneath the clothes and the skin, the ability to do, the will to conquer, the determination to understand and know this great, wonderful, curious world. Don't shrink from new experiences and custom. Take the cold bath bravely. Enter into the spirit of your big bedroom. Enjoy what is and not pine for what is not. Read some good, heavy, serious books just for discipline. Take yourself in hand and master yourself. Make yourself do unpleasant things so as to gain the upper hand of your soul. Above all, remember, your father loves you and believes in you and expects you to be a wonderful woman. Next time, we'll be talking about how Buddhism applies to the creative process. As always, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a rating or review, and feel free to contact me with questions or suggestions at podcast at sgi-usa.org.